Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Newman. I'm Professor of Space Law and Policy at the University of Northumbria in Newcastle in the United Kingdom. I'm also International Space Law Advisor for the Cold Star Technologies. I listen to the Cold Star Project. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Canigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out more about the OPEX Society and what we can achieve together in your organization, or just visit opexsociety.org. Thanks for joining us for today's show. My guest today is a former Comptroller General of the United States. That's the auditing arm of the U.S. government that does all the checking in and researching on behalf of Congress and giving them the numbers. The Comptroller General is appointed for 15 years. It's a long term, and it's a nonpartisan one. And David Walker held that role for a very long time and went through some culture shifts and uh, engaged in changing that whole organization. He was also a member of the Defense Business Board, an entity that we're going to be taking a look at. Steve Blank uh, turned me on to that, and uh, so I'm trying to connect with a few people who were members of it and get them on to talk about it and what happened there, because it's uh, an important connection between civilian commercial enterprise and the DOD, the <laughs> machinery of the military industrial complex. So <laughs> I think that's pretty important. Um, David's also a professor right now. He's a distinguished visiting professor in something called the Crow Chair at the U.S. Naval Academy. He is the author of a book, which we're going to talk about. It's, um, it's called America in 2040, Still a Superpower? Question <laughs> mark. And uh, offers some good fiscal advice on how America can maintain that superpower status. So, David, welcome. Appreciate you doing this. Uh, long, distinguished government uh, career and in areas that uh, we wouldn't normally know about. Now, I first heard about the first thing we're going to talk about, the Defense Business Board uh, from Steve Blank, uh, who I followed for a long time. And he started talking about this thing and, and uh, that he was resigning from it. And a lot of people have been released from it uh, for political reasons. And I went, what is that? And so I, I connected with a few people who are on the board, yourself being one of them, and uh, you're the first to agree to uh, and act very quickly. <laughs> I appreciate that, to book a time to talk. So let, let's begin with this. What is the purpose of the Defense Business Board, um, the official wording, and from your point of view? Well, the Defense Business Board is a federal advisory committee that is set up to advise the Secretary of Defense and the Deputy Secretary of Defense on leading business practices. And the idea is to help um, review areas as requested by the Secretary or Deputy Secretary uh, and issue reports and make recommendations designed to improve the economy, the efficient efficiency, and to also a certain extent, the effectiveness of the Department of Defense, which is the largest entity in the United States and one of the largest entities in the world. Mm. Okay. So very important, um, supposedly nonpartisan folks coming in uh, from business, giving, giving advice uh, on, on how things should work. I, back in my hometown, uh, I was appointed to some uh, advisory boards for, for the city 
And we changed the terms of reference in, in one of those committees to be able to wag the dog. We could send stuff up to council. Before that, uh, all we were doing was waiting for council to ask us questions. And we were kind of deaf and dumb, but you know, we could only talk back. <laughs> is that similar to how the Defense Business Board is run or are you able to send stuff up to them and say, hey, Deputy Secretary, look at this? Well, there's an ongoing two-way communication, and clearly to the extent that the secretary or the deputy secretary have an area that they want the Defense Business Board to look at, they will make that request, uh, and the Defense Business Board will act on it. Mm -hmm. At the same point in time, there's ongoing communication, whereas the Defense Business Board may identify certain issues or areas that they believe uh, need to be reviewed, make the recommendation to the secretary and or deputy secretary, and then that will result in a formal request. In many ways, it's very similar to what happened when I was Comptroller General of the United States mm -hmm. uh, and head of the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Before I got there, an overwhelming majority of the work that GAO did was at the request of Congress. Mm -hmm. But after we did a strategic plan, after we Im improved our congressional relations, we ended up being able to do about 15% of the work, which were areas that we identified that I did under my own authority, mm. but were consistent with that strategic plan. So, you know, GAO far ahead of the DBB in that regard, but it is a two-way ongoing communication. Okay. Well, and that's good. That's good. We don't just want a passive body that only moves when poked with a stick, right? Uh, we, want, we want to be able to tell people, hey, you should, you should look at this. This is alarming. Do you believe that the Defense Business Board is meeting that purpose? Yes, I think it is helping. There's no question about it. Um, you know, although the Defense Department still has a number of major challenges. I mean, it is a bloated bureaucracy. I mean, we are number one in the world in fighting and winning armed conflicts. So we're an A on that, uh, although we face new and emerging threats that we have to adjust to. At the same point in time, we're a D on economy, efficiency, uh, the kinds of issues that you would normally expect that in the private sector you have to be good at or else you go out of business. Right. And, and yeah, I believe that's a very important addition you guys are uh, making uh, as coming in from business and saying, look, if we ran this department this way out here in the commercial world, we'd be uh, out of business. So tell us about some of the projects that you worked on. Well, the most recent projects that I worked on is a study to look at the chief management officer uh, position uh, and whether or not it was working or not working and, you know, what if any type of changes might be necessary in order to, you know, achieve the desired outcome uh, when, that when that position was created. Another uh, study that I worked on was uh, looking at uh, data integrity and data analytics uh, to try to be able to, to uh, look at the the, the status quo with regard to the Defense Department, compare that to best practices in the private sector and what needs to be done to bring it up to, uh, up to bear, not just with regard to financial information, but a whole range of operational information as well. Okay, and, uh, and so what steps at, and, and where did that end up in, in the process here? Is that in review by someone now? In the case of the first study, uh, it resulted in legislation uh, that okay. was part of the N National Defense Authorization Act, uh, which was passed. Uh, and now uh, the Defense Department is in the process of trying to reconfigure that role and function, uh, in which will have to be done in the new administration uh, uh, in order to effectively implement that legislation. In the case of the second study, which was on data integrity and data analytics, 
those recommendations you know, went up to the secretary and the deputy secretary. As you know, right now, there's an acting secretary. Uh, there's going to be a new administration effective at noon tomorrow. By the way, this is uh, January 19th, 2021 that we're talking. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, the new administration is going to have to end up deciding what to do with that work. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, changes in, in uh, government are always <laughs> fraught with these sorts of things. Uh, what do they do? Who's going to be reviewing the information? Do they have the same priorities? Uh, and of course, they just got appointed, so they're going to be super eager to make their mark. <laughs> and who knows what's going to happen. But uh, so, so tell us about uh, some of the biggest business challenges facing the DOD today then that you saw. Well, there are a number of challenges. One, uh, as I said, the, the Defense Department uh, is a very large and complex and important entity. Uh, the, you know, the overhead part of uh, the Defense Department, which many people refer to as the tail, uh, has grown enormously. Uh, and so what's happening is, is the overhead part has grown dramatically, uh, which means that we have less money uh, to be able to allocate to the warfighter, which is what we call the tooth. So we need to look at the tooth to tail ratio. There are way too many entities, way too many layers, way too many players. Uh, in addition to that data, uh, you know, the, the data is very good with regard to war fighting, but the data is not complete, not very timely, not very useful with regard to management practices, which has to do with economy and efficiency. As you may know, the Defense Department is the only major department within the, the US government that has not been able to obtain an opinion on its financial statements. And, and one of the primary reasons for that is because of the lack of data, you know, completeness and integrity, if you will. And so, and I think they're several years away from that. So um, they also have what's called the fourth estate, which is the defense agencies, which are huge enterprises on their own. If they were in the private sector, they would be fortune, you know, some of them would be fortune companies. Uh, and we need to relook at how their, you know, what their governance structure is, how they're managed, uh, in order to improve their effectiveness. Okay, right. And uh, wow, <laughs> that's that's a lot of info there. And I appreciate the terminology. You've taught me a couple things there. That uh, tooth and tail thing. I'm going to be able to use that going forward. That's really important. Okay, so we're going to talk in more detail about your experiences, uh, U.S. Comptroller General. I am curious what that experience allowed you to bring onto the board. What were you on alert? What was uh, you know, your radar scanning for as you began your appointment? As Comptroller General of the United States, uh, I was also the Chief Executive Officer of the Government Accountability Office, better known as the GAO. Uh, and every two years, the GAO would end up uh, publishing a so-called high-risk list. The high risk list included programs, functions, and activities that were higher risk of fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement and or not achieving their mission in the federal government. Uh, and unfortunately, the Defense Department was by far number one with regard to the number of items that are on that high risk list. Many of those items had been on the high risk list since the, since the initial formation of the list in the early 1990s. Uh, in addition to that, uh, the GAO uh, did large numbers of you know, performance audits, program evaluations, and other types of activities dealing with the Defense Department every year. Uh, and I served as Comptroller General for almost 10 years. So I had you know, quite a bit of exposure to uh, the Defense Department, as well as my background in the private sector uh, and the not-for-profit sector as well. Okay. 
what what most surprised you in your service on the board? Was it more people or process based? Well, there is a process that you have to follow. Process mm-hmm. is important. Okay. The thing that surprised me the most is what ended up happening, uh, you know, at the end of December. And that was there was a wholesale change with regard to the board where nine of the board members, including the chairman, the vice chairman, myself and a number of others uh, were not renewed on on their position without any uh, advanced communication whatsoever uh, and where the White House intervened in unprecedented ways and sought to have appointed to the board uh, some of the political operatives that in some cases, frankly, didn't even come close to meeting the qualification requirements to serve on the mm-hmm. board. So that was the most politicized that I ever saw the, the, the board become. Now, keep in mind that, the, you know, that every board member serves a one-year term that is renewable. Uh, and keep in mind that the board members are, are appointed based upon the secretary or the deputy secretary. And now we're going to have a new a secretary and eventually a new deputy secretary. So what was done in December could change mm-hmm. totally within the next several months. Ah, so, so they may be pointless, uh, extremely short-term appointments that can get very frustrating. And I want to make it clear, folks, uh, and I'll link to, uh, to some stuff in the, the description uh, of the video or the audio version, if you're listening to audio only, uh, that... Uh, We'll, we'll quickly educate you up on this stuff, you know, what the Defense Business Board does and that kind of thing. But um, you need, you know, continuity is important. And these are folks who have usually, <laughs> who are appointed here, who have run real businesses, not dinky little businesses, or they've been like Dave here in charge of large uh, government organizations and know their stuff. It's not uh, meant to be, you know, just some uh, fellow they ran into on the road who happens to believe in the same political ideas that they do. Uh, you know, you have to have some experience with these larger organizations in order to be able to have something to give, right? Um, it, it shouldn't be just somebody who agrees with you. So, Dave, let's jump into uh, your experiences as Comptroller General of the United States. Your term, um, it's normally a 15-year non-renewable term appointment. It is very long. Um, and you're in charge of something called the Government Accountability Office that uh, takes care of uh, auditing. It's, it's part of the legislation branch. And uh, your term was um, from 98 to 08. Head, head roles like this don't often have a rules manual. Uh, uh, what I've seen frequently is people have to invent or create the role your way uh, as you go. And I'm curious if you found this to be the case uh, and if so, how did you adapt to the situation you found yourself in after being appointed to being Comptroller General? Well, first, I was appointed to a 15-year term in 1998, of which I ended up serving 10. Uh, and I'm happy to go into why I left early, if you want. Uh, but, uh, you know, when I, when I came on board, the Congress was not happy with the GAO. Uh, the Congress had, uh, had downsized the GAO 40% in the five years before I came on board. Uh, they had had a five-year hiring freeze. And what the employees didn't know uh, that I knew uh, it was that they were gonna be downsized another 25 to 40% if I didn't turn it around. Uh, so I came in to be a turnaround specialist. Uh, and the first thing I had to do was to help create a burning platform, to help people understand that they were in trouble. Uh, and that while they were a very good agency, a very important agency, a very well-respected agency, 
especially on a global scale, uh, that you know that uh, that they were in trouble with the client and things needed to change. Uh, and so we ended up uh, putting together the first ever strategic plan for the agency, totally reorganized the agency based upon that plan, changed our recruiting practices. Uh, we, we changed our training methods. We ended up changing a, a lot of our data management. Uh, we focused on results rather than activities. Uh, we ended up in creating new partnerships within the government and outside the government, both domestically and internationally. Uh, made major changes to our human capital uh, policies and programs, the people strategy programs, data management, et cetera. And the bottom line is, is after uh, nine and a half years, we were 13% smaller, one third less footprint. We eliminated a layer of management. We went from 35 to 13 organizational units. Uh, we increased productivity 50 to 100 plus percent, and we increased financial outcomes, financial benefits. We over tripled financial benefits. So it's an example of where you can make government smaller, but much more effective, much more respected, much more results oriented and candidly what we did and it was in combination with my executives and others what we did is transferable and accountable to other parts of government hmm. and it sure needs to be okay i'm an operational excellence guy so i love what i'm hearing um, especially the change from the the measures the kpis a from activity look at all the stuff we're doing, you know, and we can make nice reports and graphs and stuff like that about that. And now pay us, right? you know, to, right. hey, what are the results here? Our, our end customers actually going to use uh, because they don't care really how much activity, uh, unless they're, they're scrutinizing you every day uh, and they want to know they're getting their money's worth. But, you know, and, and let me give you, let me give you a minor example. It sounds yeah. minor, but it was major. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we focused results, which were financial benefits, in other words, money saved that could be redeployed for the priorities or returned to the treasury, and outcomes that couldn't be defined in dollar terms like safety, security, privacy, things of that nature. You can't define that in dollar terms, you know, environmental issues, if you will. Uh, but uh, one minor thing was we issued hundreds of reports a year, some of which were very, very thick, okay? Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't know how who's going to read a thick report nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the minor things I thought, which was a major challenge, uh, was I, I mandated that every report or testimony that went out the door had to be summarized in one page. Here's what we did. Here's what we found. Here's what we recommend. And to the extent possible, have a graphic that, you know, because graphics convey a lot. Culturally, that was a, that was a tremendous challenge but it was one of the most popular things that we did. Mm. And what happened is it meant is a lot more people read those one pagers. And if they were interested in knowing more, they could read more of the report. But right. what was happening before is they were just collecting dust and very few people were, were reading them. Uh, and then the other issue is, is that we, we focused on not just how many recommendations we made, but were they adopted? And if so, for what financial and or other benefit? And it totally changed the culture. Uh, and I'm pleased to say uh, that it stuck. All right, well, that, that, that was exactly what I was gonna ask you about next was the culture shift. Um, and so you, you started talking about that. Um, I am wondering how information flowed to you in that role. Uh, I, can't e I actually can't even imagine 
um, how that would work. You've got all this data um, coming from where, what, what data houses and how's it given to you? And then somebody has got to sift through it. Um, and try well, and first let's talk a little bit about it. Yeah. It starts with a strategic plan, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because the GAO is about how do we improve performance and accountability for the benefit of the American people. Mm -hmm. All right. And 85% of what we did was at the request of Congress that was informed by a strategic plan. 15% were things that I selected that tend to be more complex, more controversial, more longer term, that you may not get a request from Congress, but it was important you know, that, that it be done. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so we had an engagement acceptance process whereby uh -huh. when we got asked to do something, we reviewed it, we assessed you know, whether or not it was within our confidence, whether it was in our scope, what the relative risk would be, how much resources it would take. We had an engagement review process that would review how things were going. And then at the end, we had a process that reviewed the findings. I got involved based upon value and risk. I got involved based upon those things that were either high value and or high risk. And I did the same thing with regard to testimonies. I think I think still have the record for the most testimonies of any person before the Congress. Uh, but I would only testify on items that I thought were high value, high risk, or areas where I had personal expertise, mm -hmm. where I felt the Congress would want me to be the one to testify, if you will. Uh, and uh, but yet, you know, we had all of our executives, you know, doing testimonies as well, which leveraged our, our you know, our, our capabilities, if you will. So uh, we had very good processes, a very good information flow. Uh, and those processes that were put in place continue today. Hmm. Okay. And and the scope is uh, anything that's inside government operations? Is that, is that the case? Everything the federal government is doing or thinking about doing anywhere in the world with a few restrictions. Okay. There, there, there are a few restrictions in the intelligence area. Yeah. Okay. There are a few restrictions with regard to the Federal Reserve, but there are less restrictions now than there used to be. Hmm. Okay, and and I guess at, we've talked a little bit about the um, the the one pager summaries and the the culture shift to hey let's let's think about the end user here a little bit give them a, a graphic to look at um, what what else are you proud of, of of your time there? Well, when I came into the GAO, I had three objectives that I set for myself at the beginning. I wanted to transform the GAO such that it would be a world-class accountability organization that led by example, practiced what it preached and was results-oriented. Uh, we accomplished that objective, clearly. Uh, secondly, I wanted to transform the accountability community, both internationally and domestically. That includes uh, supreme audit institutions around the world. That includes state, state auditors, if you will, and, and, and local auditors, that network, to move it more towards performance and accountability uh, to, to go towards oversight, insight, and foresight, not just focusing on what's wrong, but also acknowledging what's right, not just uh, also identifying best practices, lessons learned, sharing that information, uh, trying to accomplish that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was head of strategic planning for auditor generals around the world, and we put together the first ever strategic plan there. We implemented that and transformed that organization and many other uh, organizations around the world. Uh, and so I accomplished those two. The third objective was to try to get the Congress to make a down payment on the structural financial imbalance that the country had. Mm. The growing debt to GDP driven primarily uh, by demographics, rising healthcare costs, 
but also the increasing gap between revenues and expenditures. You know, I accomplished the first two and ultimately I became convinced that I couldn't accomplish the third one there because when you're controller general, you're not allowed to get involved in uh, advocating for policy uh, choices. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and ultimately somebody needed to be able to do that because you can't just point out the problem, you also have to show a way forward. Uh, and that ultimately the Congress and the president have to make the decisions, but quite frankly, they were dysfunctional then, they're much more dysfunctional now. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, and it, it matters who's at the helm. How, you, you mentioned earlier a number of organizational units within the GAO and, and you'd cut the number, um, but that still means you've got like department heads or something. Um, how, how did that, I guess, spilling down of, um, of initiatives and energy in that work, uh, I imagine it's hard to let people go in, in government roles uh, you know, you've really got to document everything well in order to justify that kind of thing. What happens when you have you somebody- You can do it, but it's more challenging. Okay. What, what happens when you have somebody that what? What was the it, question? It's an on board. Oh, uh, well, uh, you, uh, I had to do that. I had mm -hmm. some people in that situation. And, and basically when you're making major change, you have to start at the top mm -hmm. and you have to start at the bottom and you have to work to the middle. And why mm -hmm. do I say that? You start at the top, for the people that report directly to you mm -hmm. because you've got visibility. You can touch their belly button. Right. You know what they're doing. You know what they're with the program or they're not. If they're with the program, great. If they're not, they need to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. And I had uh, you know, a couple of people that weren't with the program. Uh, in, in one case, they got demoted. Uh, another case, they got, they got uh, put into a different position. I actually were three. And in the third case, they actually got removed uh, from the organization. Uh, you don't have to do many that sends yeah. a signal and people know that you're serious. Then you also start at the bottom. Why do you start at the bottom? You start with the new people because mm. they're not encumbered with the past. Yeah. All right. And so, so, so the, the biggest challenge is working to the middle. All right. Uh, and you know, where, where you have, you know, management and supervisor level people in the middle, mm -hmm. uh, where, where ultimately you have to come at them both ways. You have to come at them from the top. You have to come at them from the bottom. Uh, and that's where it takes more time to change, especially people that are close to retirement. Because when people are close to retirement, obviously they just want to write it out. I mean, yeah. that, and that's human nature. I'm not, you know, that's just the way it is. You don't have to be in the government to be that way. People in the private sector are that way too. Yeah. Yeah. Don't rock the vote now. I got two years left and let me just get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Oh. Well, change oh. is tough. People don't mm -hmm. like to change. And you also have to keep in mind, the, you know, the government is monopoly. It doesn't face competition. You know, it tends to be very process oriented. Okay. You know, it, it tends to be a lag indicator, you know, uh, if you will. And, 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 you know, that needs to change. And, and I'm pleased to say that in partnership with my colleagues at the GAO, we change that at the GAO. All right. Well, Dave, you're the author of a, a new book. It's called America in 2040, colon, still a superpower, question mark. Uh, and I read a few reviews about it. Uh, it it's on Amazon. It talks about, uh, the reviews talk about physical sanity or fiscal sanity, excuse me, and government spending. Uh, so tell us about the book and your main premise or argument. It's, it's not too much of a stretch for me to guess, but I want to hear from, from you. Well, you know, the book is divided into three sections. A wake-up call, a call to action, uh, and a way forward. The wake-up call is what things could look like for the United States in the year 2040, both internationally and domestically, 
if we don't change course. We face increasing security threats uh, internationally. We face growing gaps between the haves and have-nots domestically. Uh, our finances are in terrible shape and are deteriorating, uh, not just at the federal level, but many states and localities. Uh, our monetary policy, uh, you know, is un is unsustainable in its present form. Okay, uh, and uh, the, the second issue is COVID nineteen. Lessons learned COVID nineteen and the fact that it's a microcosm of what's wrong with government. Mm. You know, believe it or not, the United States was ranked number one in the world in preparedness for a pandemic in twenty nineteen. Uh, maybe we were number one, but we sure weren't prepared enough. Okay. Uh, and, and what are some of the lessons learned there and, and that we learn? And also the fact that, you know, how uh, misinformation was rampant, especially from the media about that. Okay. Then I talk about lessons from history, other great powers that are no longer with us, mm. the principles and values that, uh, that our country was founded on that we've strayed from, Washington's four warnings and how we've ignored his four warnings. Uh, I then move into uh, solutions. You know, what are some things that we need to do uh, in order to put our country in a better position to make sure that we remain a superpower in 2040 and beyond and to make sure that we can discharge our stewardship responsibility to our children, grandchildren, future generations. Uh, and over half the book is based upon solutions, you know, that go, you know, anywhere from you know, what do we need to do on, on the tax side? What do we need to do on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, health care, defense, government organization operations, political reforms? You know, what are some things we need to be thinking about with regard to immigration, with regard to infrastructure, with regard to our budget processes? So it's, it's uh, but it's written in very lay terms. Uh, it's written so that, you know, anybody with, you know, a high school education would easily be able to comprehend it. Uh, and I also try to use a lot of charts and graphs when I get into the solutions because they convey a lot of information very concisely. Right, right. And using what you've learned. Yeah, and I want to make a point here for right. folks. I, I was watching a movie not too long ago. It was a movie from when I was a kid. It's called The Final Countdown. It's with the uh, USS Nimitz, which is an aircraft carrier. And that yeah, thing yeah. Was, was new. That thing was a year or two old when they filmed that movie. Uh, maybe even newer than that. And the thing is now it's like 40 years later and that thing is at the end of its service life. And these things need to be replaced, folks. We need a, a new aircraft carrier platform. Okay, hey, guess what? Congress has figured that out. DOD has figured that out. And they have something called the USS Gerald Ford. The problem is the Gerald Ford is a $13 billion uh, price tag object. It's a non-functional platform right now. It can't launch its planes. There's this constant underestimating of costs and overestimation of abilities in that. Uh, and I start going crazy to, when I when I see these things because I go, who's who's doing the auditing here? <laughs> you know, who's who's doing the assessing in that? Um, will America still have the financial power to fund itself as a superpower in 20 years, Dave? Well, here's one of our challenges: the government's grown too big, mm. promised too much, and has lost control of the budget. Mm. The federal government before COVID-19 was 10 and a half times bigger as a percentage of the economy than it was in 1912. Uh, the, you know, the federal government in 1912, 97% of the budget yeah. was controlled by the Congress. Yeah. And that all related to the express and enumerated responsibilities envisioned for the federal government by the founders. Uh, before COVID-19, that 97% was less than 30 and declining. Uh, you know, the simple fact is, is that 
Uh, you know, there's more and more pressure being brought to bear on the express and enumerated responsibilities of the government, defense, homeland security, federal judicial system, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, and, and yet we have increasing risk, mm -hmm. uh, you know, internationally. Uh, a new, a, a, a re-emerging China, uh, countries that are lying against us economically, diplomatically, militarily, uh, new domains of threats, you know, space, cyber, bio, uh, by, you know, and, and, you know, and by the way, as you may know, you talked about the Nimitz and the Ford, you know, the Teddy Roosevelt was put out of action uh, for, for, for a period of time because of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and one of the things we also have to recognize when you're talking about platforms is we need to go to more unmanned platforms mm. because today you've got a situation where visibility, you know, above the surface, whether it be on the water or whether it be on the land, is almost total. Uh, and, 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 and therefore, uh, and, and the type of weapon systems, hypersonic and other that exist now, uh, create great vulnerabilities. And so we have to do what we've been doing better, but we also have to rethink what we should be doing based upon current and future threats mm -hmm. and likely available resources. Mm. But, and we haven't been doing that as well as we need to, and that's got to change. Right. Yeah, folks, in World War II, uh, the Nimitz, <laughs> not the aircraft carrier, but the Admiral, was looking for Japanese aircraft carriers uh, and had no idea, he had an idea of where they were, but you, you didn't have satellites, couldn't look down and go, ah, there they are, let's go get them. It was, a, it was a cat and mouse hunting thing through the Pacific. And uh, you show up and you send out a bunch of planes. Um, and we're having a problem with plane radius today where we can't uh, get to where we want to go. Um, we, we do we do have a lot of problems. Um, you mentioned space there. Let's finish up with this, Dave. Do you believe space is an important theater for America to remain a superpower? I do. I believe, I believe there are three new dom uh, threat domains Okay. Space is one, cyber is one, and bio is one. Uh, and I think they're all very serious. We need to take them seriously. And we need to reassess our national security strategies in light of those uh, you know, new, new emerging uh, threats and, and, and changing alliances around the world. Okay, very, very important. Uh, check out the book. I'll link to it in the description below. It'll be a non-affiliate link. I don't get any money for <laughs> including it there. Uh, David, what, what are you looking for these days? Uh, who should connect with you? Where should they connect with you? And obviously it would be helpful for them to have uh, kind of filtered through by reading the book and, and knowing whether they agree with you or not before uh, talking to well, you. Well, I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me, uh, Dave Walker. And you know, uh, I live in Alexandria, Virginia. It's easy enough to figure out where I am, okay? Um, what I'm focusing on is what needs to be done to help make sure America remains a superpower and that we discharge our stewardship responsibility to our kids, grandkids, and future generations of America. That's what I'm focused on. Uh, that's what the book is about. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just what it means to our country, what it means to individuals, their families, uh, if you will. Uh, and the organizations that I'm involved with, I'm involved in a number of not-for-profit not organizations. Uh, they're focused on, uh, on those issues as well as how we can deal with the political dysfunctionality in our country. We now have a republic that's not representative of nor responsive to the public. Too many people on the far left, too many people on the far right, not enough people representing the sensible center, which is what America is all about. 
too much gridlock, not enough progress. Uh, and so that's how I'm spending my time. And uh, I'm also teaching uh, midshipmen at the Naval Academy, uh, the economics of national security. Um, it, it's particularly nice to do that because I was supposed to go there a number of years ago and I couldn't go because I have a bad left year. But mm. so far, there's 100% agreement that it's better to be a professor than a plebe. And I don't think anybody's going to disagree with that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Distinguished visiting professor at the U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, probably mentioned that up front. And uh, it was really great to have you on, Dave. Uh, I, I'd love to talk to you again in a few months uh, sure. after I've immersed myself even more in this. And, uh, and I'll have even more uh, specific questions. But I appreciate you doing this. Thanks for being here. Happy to do it, Jason. And thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in. If you're interested in working with us at Cold Star Tech, here are some of the things that we can help with. There's a lot of people who talk about process, documentation control, attention to detail, all this stuff. We help organizations become true learning organizations. Remember, if something isn't written down or recorded in some way that's accessible, searchable, findable, it didn't happen. It might as well not have happened. So if you have two people who solve a problem, a serious problem in your organization, but they do so in isolation and nobody finds out about it, which happens all the time, then it didn't really happen and nobody else can access that wisdom. So we unlock wisdom for your organization. We do a lot of things in the space industry. We have access to regulatory and legal officials who can help you if you're a space industry founder find out what areas of regulation and compliance uh, do you need to be you know, working with, compliant with. And we find a lot of folks don't even know about some of these areas. They don't even know that they exist. Can you imagine how you're going to stumble and stub your toe and really screw up your organization's timetable if you don't know about these things? So come and talk to us. We've got great relationships with the right people, especially in the United States and in England. And uh, we'll be able to help you with that. And so when it comes to process improvement, whether that's some sort of business documentation, business development roles, wow, have I seen some things in business development. You got founders out there who all they're doing is quoting on projects. This is a mistake. You're wasting your energy bidding on things that most of which you never even had a chance of winning in the first place. Uh, I've seen people bankrupt themselves bidding on everything or bidding on only these uh, high-end things and not realizing that you need to have a strategy so that this bidding process pays for itself. I mean, you got to learn how to screen here. And this is not something that they teach you in school. I, I had to learn it myself, so don't feel bad about it, but come talk to us about it, okay? Uh, so either it's on the business process side or the actual manufacturing of physical goods that kind of process improvement. You can come talk to us. Can this be done faster, cheaper, better? And yes, most of the time it sure can um, because people just do stuff. And the first person to invent the way of doing things uh, is the person who gets to choose most of the time how things are done. This happens all over the place. I like to point out our um, traffic signals for, for automobiles are based on the way that they ran railway traffic 100 years before that, okay? So, and this is key in the space industry right now, which is new, right? This is an area that I personally am interested in. How we figure out how to do stuff today is going to impact generations because people are so easily locked into, this is how we've always done it. 
And if you hear that at your organization, there's a warning bell. This is how we've always done it. You need to come talk to us at that point, okay? So reach out to us. It's easy to do. Just message me on LinkedIn or email me at jason at coldstartech.com. I want to hear from you. Thanks for listening.